0: You can turn with me uh, either in the notes sheet, the questions and answers for this Lord's Day are printed there, or if you'd like, uh, to the back of the Psalter hymnal, page 878, It's where you'll find the questions and answers for Lord's Day 15. So I'll read the questions, three questions this week, and we'll all respond with the answers together. Question 37. What do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. He did this in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace righteousness and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Well, as you can tell from those questions and answers we just read, we're actually going to do a bit of a thematic rewind from Easter. Uh, The Catechism is teaching us this week um, about Jesus's life of suffering, unjust trial, and death on the cross. So we'll be thinking about those questions we just confessed in conjunction with a fairly large portion of the 27th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. So if you'd like to turn there, you can. Uh, I'm not going to read it all up front. We'll read it in sections as we go. But before we begin, let's pray. Almighty God, without you, we can do nothing. So we pray that you would illumine today your sacred word by your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to receive it our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, In 2003, two men uh, named Ryan Ferguson and Charles Erickson were arrested on murder charges. Uh, Erickson pled guilty, but he testified against Ferguson, even though Ferguson insisted the whole time that he was innocent. But despite the physical evidence that was lacking to tie Ferguson to the case, he was convicted and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Ten years into his sentence, new evidence came to light uh, that demanded a retrial. Uh, It it threw Ferguson's, uh, rather Erickson's, testimony into question. The charges were ultimately dropped and he was released from prison. Stories like this are not uncommon. Since 1989, there have been over 1,400 exonerations like this. Sometimes, innocent people suffer for crimes they didn't commit. The same is true of Jesus. He suffered an unjust trial and was wrongly convicted and sentenced to death. More importantly, he suffered God's wrath, even though he never sinned. But there's a key difference between cases like Ryan Ferguson and the case of Christ. Jesus was not fighting the false charges. He willingly suffered. It was his mission to come to earth so that he could suffer and die. His great purpose was to deliver us, as the catechism says, body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life and that main idea of this Lord's Day will come through as we look at Matthew 27 today. The first section we'll look at is Matthew 27:11 through 31. And this chunk of text sort of plays out in three scenes. The first scene we could call the trial of Pilate, which is verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, why would I say that we could think of this as Pilate's trial? Isn't Jesus the one being tried here? Well, yes and no. Matthew refers to Pilate as governor three times, making it clear to us he has a position of authority. This is the state versus a convicted criminal. This is Caesar versus Christ. And yet, in chapters 26 and 27, what Matthew does is illustrate the total betrayal of God's Son, from his own disciples to the Jewish leadership to the Roman leadership, to the Jewish people, to the Roman soldiers. Everyone is conspiring against Jesus. And understood in that context, Matthew is the one putting all of these groups on trial as he writes his gospel. And that includes Pilate. But thinking he's the one in charge, Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, is this a serious question? It doesn't seem like it is. The tone seems to be rather... You can't be serious. Are you the king of the Jews? But despite Pilate's doubts, we know the answer. The truth is, Jesus is and he isn't. And that's what Jesus' reply communicates. At the base level, his answer is yes, he is a king. And not only the king of the Jews, but of all creation, because he's God. But Jesus doesn't explain that here. So while he can't deny his kingship because he can't lie, He also can't answer with a simple yes. That would be an admission of guilt under the law, and he's not guilty. So he says, you have said so. Those are your words. He's saying yes and no. Then more accusations come, courtesy of the Jewish leadership who's there, and Pilate gets impatient. Are you hard of hearing? Don't you hear all the things they're saying against you? Get your head out of the clouds. Your life is on the line here but to the governor's great amazement, Jesus doesn't answer. He doesn't act like we would. If you or I were charged with a crime we didn't commit, faced with the threat of execution, we would be fighting with everything we could against the false charges. We would be concerned with our lives, but Jesus is not concerned with his life here. He's concerned with ours. And then the action shifts slightly. Matthew gives us some more background information as we transition to what we could think of as our second scene of this first part of Matthew 27, the trial of the Jewish people. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, "'Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ?' Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The crisis of this scene is revealed immediately in verse 15. Will the crowd, the people who are called people of God, will they choose God? Will they choose good by asking for the release of their Messiah, or will they choose evil? And as he often does, Matthew is putting this choice before us as well. A decision must be made. You must be for or against him. When it comes to Jesus, neutrality is not an option. But we soon read that they made the wrong choice. The people asked for Barabbas. Maybe they viewed him as a brave patriot, a nationalist revolutionary who was willing to use violence to overthrow the Roman oppressors. Or maybe they simply hated Jesus that much. But unlike Jesus, Barabbas actually is guilty of criminal activity. Uh, To put it in contemporary terms, he's a terrorist. On the other hand, Jesus is righteous. This is something we know uh, as readers of Matthew's gospel, as believers. But this is also something somehow Pilate's wife knows as well. God had revealed to her in a dream that the man they called the king of the Jews was an innocent man. What's going on here? This seems like sort of a strange detail to include this stuff about the dream. But what Matthew's doing is making sure we understand that all the injustice Jesus is experiencing is not for his own sake. He's not getting what he deserved. And even the wife of the Roman governor who's going to condemn him knows that he's innocent. Christ is not suffering for himself. He's suffering for us, for his people. But Pilate doesn't listen to his wife. He asks the crowd, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And as we've said, they say, give us Barabbas. But it's not just the crowds who are to blame. Matthew tells us that the leaders persuaded them to reject Jesus. In chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus had looked over the crowds and felt pity, saying they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. But here we see it's even worse. The shepherds they do have are are wolves in disguise. But the sheep turn out to be quite wolfish as well. After they demand the release of Barabbas, Pilate asks, well, then what should I do with Jesus? And the reply is stunning. They could have said, forget about him, or what do we care? Do whatever you want with him, or let him rot in prison even. But instead, they order Pilate to crucify him. This is shocking. Something's very wrong. Only a few hours before, Jesus was greeted in the city as a king, as the son of David, and the people prayed to God to save him. Now they're demanding his death. Why? What changed? That's a good question. One pilot himself asks, what evil has he done? But the crowd doesn't have a reason. Instead, they only offer more volume. So Pilate gives up. Before a riot breaks out, he washes his hands in front of the people, symbolically proclaiming his innocence in the situation. But Pilate isn't innocent of Jesus' blood, any more than anyone else is. Pilate is guilty. And he can wash his hands over and over and over, but no amount of water has the power to wash away blood guilt from a person's hands. Only blood removes blood. And claiming innocence does not save. Rather, admitting guilt is the first step. But the people accept Pilate's terms. They say, his blood be on us and on our children. They're accepting responsibility for what will happen to Jesus. They're accepting responsibility for killing the son of the vineyard owner. But let's not misunderstand. They're not accepting responsibility. They're not admitting their guilt because they want to be forgiven of it. Rather, they're standing firm in their sin. It seems they're almost proud of it. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Matthew tells us Pilate is the one who handed Jesus over to be crucified. But at the same time, as will become clear as we continue through this passage, he doesn't want us to forget Isaiah 53, where the prophet prophesied that the triune God willed that Jesus would be handed over for sins. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the ones responsible, ultimately, for this handing over. So yes, Pilate acted unjustly, and Jesus suffered for it. The wrong man was convicted, the wrong man was scourged, the wrong man was crucified. But God used all of these wrongs to make everything right. As one author said, he who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything, so that we who have done everything wrong would be condemned for nothing. Pilate isn't the one in charge here. Something bigger is going on. There's one more thing that seems important to say here, Notice that Matthew merely mentions the scourging of Jesus. From the earliest records of martyrdom, all the way up to the passion of the Christ, it seems that the church is fascinated with the physical details, the goriness of suffering that Christ experienced and that his followers experienced. But this is not what the gospel writers are interested in. They don't linger over the physical tortures of Jesus. Jesus. Instead, they focus on other ways that he suffered and why he suffered. We'll see that especially in this final scene, the trial of the Roman soldiers, Matthew 27, 27 through 31, says this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. In this scene, the abuse Jesus experiences continues. And again, even though Jesus is experiencing physical pain here, the crown of thorns hurt, being hit on the head with the reed hurt, Matthew's focus is on the soldier's verbal flogging. Jesus is being mocked. The scarlet robe is a soldier's robe, a symbol of power, sarcastically placed on the powerless victim. The crown of thorns, too, was a joke. Uh, Hellenistic kings often wore what were called radiant crowns. You could uh, picture the crown that the Statue of Liberty had, a crown with thorns protruding out from it. But here, the radiant crown is reversed for a laugh. King of the Jews indeed. Similarly, the reed placed in Jesus' hand was a mock scepter. A child pretending to be a king might use a reed in his game. So the soldiers are saying Jesus is a pretender. And finally, they kneel before him, uh, physically communicating the opposite of their true feeling. So throughout this scene of Jesus suffering at the hands of the Roman soldiers, the focus is on jokes at Jesus' expense. And I think it's true that things meant to be funny are often the cruelest things that happen. Teasing the overweight child at school or the kid who who doesn't fit in for whatever reason making slights about someone's family or race or intelligence. Throughout this scene, jokes are the main instruments of torture, which is something we could reflect on in many ways, one of which being those of us who might think we haven't been persecuted for Christ's sake should think again. The New Testament prepares us to follow our Lord in earthly suffering, and here we see that mocking is included. In that, So let's not be quick to dismiss social and, and verbal persecution as real. It happens, and it's painful. So if you've been on the receiving end of mean-spirited mockery, so is Jesus. He knows what it means to be teased. He knows what it means to be hated. He knows what it means to be betrayed and left out. You can turn to him knowing that he understands and he sympathizes with your pain. And you can also turn to him for forgiveness because, as we all know, we're not just the mocked. Oftentimes, we're the mockers. So when you find yourself in the place of the soldiers, when you're the bully and the brute, remember that he suffered and died even for those who caused his suffering and death. Come to him in faith and he'll wash away your guilt with his blood. With our second point, we read about that blood being shed. But as the catechism teaches us and Matthew will show us, there's more going on at the cross than just bloodshed. Jesus is on his way to hell. Matthew 27, 32 through 44 says this. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So with the help of Simon the Cyrenian, Jesus trudges to Golgotha, the place where he will be crucified. And if our topic today is Christ's suffering, if that's the main theme we're thinking about, it's easy to see how the crucifixion fits into that. But... He's suffering even in unexpected ways before and during his being nailed to the cross. The wine he's offered is mixed with bitter gall. No doubt Matthew is thinking of Psalm 69 verse 12. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. This was not a gesture of kindness. Now, if we were reading the passage quickly, we might also miss the cross entirely. Remarkably, the crucifixion itself is reported with only one Greek word, and it's not even the focus of that sentence. Matthew's more eager to tell us what happens after Jesus is on the cross. The soldiers gambled for his clothes by casting lots. Again, Matthew's head is in the Psalter. Psalm 22 predicted this. They're dividing up my clothes among themselves. They're casting lots for my garments. Why is Matthew including these references to the Old Testament? Because the evidence against Jesus' Messiahship was his crucifixion. How could the Messiah die? But the evidence for Jesus as Messiah was the prediction and the description of his crucifixion in the Old Testament. See, he can't be the Messiah. He was crucified, says the unbeliever. See, he must be the Messiah. His abuse was predicted down to the last detail, replies the believer. Who is right? Does Jesus' death prove he was a fraud, abandoned by God to die? Or does Jesus' death prove that he's the suffering servant sent by God to save the world? The question is before you today Who is Jesus? This is a question Matthew won't let us get away from. But he's not just curious as to what your thoughts might be on that topic. He's inviting you to answer rightly the way Pilate did unknowingly. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Some have called this the gospel according to Pilate, because even though he doesn't know what he's saying, he's right. All who believe in Jesus, the son of God, the son of David, the anointed king, are Jews. Paul says they're circumcised in their hearts by faith. So king of the Jews means king of believers. That's who Jesus is. That's what Matthew wants us to see. And then this king gets company. Two robbers, two terrorists like Barabbas, are crucified on either side of him more evidence that Jesus is the true Messiah. Just as Isaiah prophesied, he's numbered with the transgressors. It's becoming clear that everything Christ's enemies are doing to shame him is only a fulfillment of scripture. They don't know it, but they're playing a part in God's plan. And that includes the mocking Jesus continues to endure. The, the insults he receives remind us of, again, Psalm 22, Psalm 109, Isaiah 53. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And this is a, a sentence that deserves a lot of reflection, because Jesus has walked on water. He's fed thousands and thousands of people with almost no food He's healed blind and crippled men and and he's raised people from the dead. But in a certain sense, this is the greatest miracle he performed. He did not come down from the cross. He could have asked his father for more than 12 legions of angels to come and and rescue him. But he didn't. He stays. He shoulders the curse of God. Another thing we, we, we see in this sentence is that It's the exact opposite of Jesus' call of discipleship. He invites people not to come down from their crosses, but to pick them up and follow him. Of course, our crosses are not the cross. Only Christ bore God's wrath against the sin of the whole human race. But our crosses are the way we follow Jesus, down the path of suffering first and only then glory. So the passers-by are mocking. But not only them. Matthew shows us a picture of the whole Jewish leadership present at the cross, participating in, in mocking the Messiah. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders are all there ridiculing him as well. But as with Pilate's placard, they speak better than they know. They're preaching the gospel. He's the king of Israel. He trusts in God. He's the son of God. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He cannot save himself. That's true. He cannot come down from the cross. He cannot put an end to this mockery. In all of this, he's sustaining the wrath of God for us, propelled by great love. This is what he must do. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now this almost crosses the line into comedy. How ridiculous is this image? But Matthew is showing us Jesus' isolation. Even those who might be expected to show some sympathy, finding themselves in the same situation, are participating in the derision. And that brings us back to Psalm 69. Insults have broken my heart so that I am in despair I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Closing out this section, we come to the moment of death and to Christ's deepest moment of despair. Matthew 27, 45 through 50 reads, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. As death approaches the son of God, The earth is covered in darkness. Nature is mourning. The human world is committing its most heinous sin. They're killing the light. And so darkness seems like an appropriate response. Jesus, meanwhile, is surrounded by a darkness of another kind. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for all its agony, this question is deep gospel. This is Jesus' descent into hell. And we shouldn't soften this verse. Matthew's telling us Jesus drank the cup of wrath that was ours down to the dregs until there was none left. He became a curse for us. At the moment Jesus' distress peaks, all light, all love, all help, all comfort is taken away from him. And he asks why, not asking to know the cause. He knows the cause. This is part of his plan, after all. But he asks why as an expression of unfathomable sorrow. His isolation is now complete. His disciples had abandoned him when the trials started, yet even then, he had enjoyed the help of his father. But now, on Golgotha, he doesn't have the father's help. All he has is his wrath. And still, even in this abandonment, Jesus cries out, not to Elijah as some thought, but to his father. And he teaches us the invaluable lesson that even when we feel that God is absent from us, faith believes. In distress, faith cries out. And then after one more malicious offer of sour wine, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And the shout is inarticulate, but we know what this cry means. Death, the end. But notice even here, Matthew tells us, death is not something that happened to Jesus. Rather, he gave up his spirit. Jesus died by an act. He gave himself voluntarily for you. So I'll close with one brief reflection on all of this. When we're tempted, as we often are, to think that God has abandoned us in our suffering, we can turn to Jesus, the ultimate human sufferer. He suffered his entire life, as the catechism teaches us, especially at the end, as we've considered today. And his suffering culminated at the cross. As Jesus was crucified, God did truly turn his back. At Golgotha, God exhausted his wrath against all our sins, past, present, and future on his son. So while our Father in heaven may take away from season to season the sense of his presence, he never abandons his children. That's what the cross teaches. Christ was abandoned so that we would never be. If you don't trust in Jesus today, this promise is not for you. But it can be. Come to Christ and believe. Trust that all that was spoken of this morning and this afternoon was done for you. And then you will be brought into God's family, never to be abandoned by him. For those who do trust in Christ, remember his suffering. As we continue our our Christian pilgrimage, trudging down the path of suffering that he paved, remember Jesus knows what you're going through. He's been there. He's felt your pain. And also remember that he suffered something that you never have to, the wrath of God. Friends, this is the gospel. Hear it, believe it, marvel at it. God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life are yours. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as we reflect on the events that led to Christ's crucifixion, we're reminded that your love for us is unwavering. You willingly gave your son and he willingly gave his life so that we might have everlasting life. As we consider the moment Jesus cried out and gave up his spirit, we're humbled, by the magnitude of your love and the depth of your mercy. In that moment of hellish darkness, Jesus felt the weight of our sins and shouldered all your wrath against them. He endured separation from you that we might be reconciled to you. So we pray for the strength to carry our crosses and follow you, even in the face of adversity. Help us always remember that you are with us, even in our darkest moments. Thank you for the gift of salvation for the hope that we have, not only because of Jesus' death, but especially because of his resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one final song of praise to the Lord, number 369 in the Psalter hymnal, Worship Christ the Risen King, number 369.